Okay, so um, this morning we're going to, we've read through it, we're going to look at Acts 9. Um, this is where Saul, um, who becomes Paul, um, is converted um, at the beginning um, of his ministry. So, like I said, Saul, if, if I use the word Saul or Paul, they're kind of interchangeable. Um, he was Saul, it's almost like he was Saul before he became Christian, and then he was Paul, but I, I did some research, and apparently those two words are interchangeable. Saul is a Hebrew equivalent of Paul, apparently. Cleverer people than me have found that out. Um, so if I use the two, it is the same person, so um, don't get too confused. Um, Saul would go on to lay the um, foundations of um, the early church. Um, he would travel all over the area um, in his, in his um, ministry, he had a fairly large, he's a fairly large contributor to, um, the New Testament. Um, 13 books were penned by him, um, either actually by him or some people think that he got someone to write it down, but there were his, his works. So if it wasn't for this moment in Acts, there'd be a big chunk of the New Testament missing and a lot of our understanding wouldn't be there. So if he had remained, um, a Jewish rabbi, then things might have looked a little bit different. And some, again, I did hear one argument saying that actually um, Christianity may not have um, progressed as it did if it wasn't for for Saul um, spreading the word. But as powerful as what we read here is of, you know, someone having a conversion experience, if that had happened to anyone, we would be, that's amazing, that's an amazing experience if Jesus came to you and said what he said to um, Saul. But I think the the most powerful thing to me about this story when I was, was reading it was it happened to Saul. Now, if you, if we try, we're going to try and spend a bit of time before I get into my, I've got three points. That's always a good uh, start in a sermon. But before we get into that, I'm just trying to um, unpack um, how this story is so amazing. So Saul was not a pleasant man. He was not a pleasant man at all. Um, it's, it sort of set, starts to say there that he was snorting, you know, breathing murderous threats. Um, but he was he was a horrendous person. Um, it said, you know, in other areas of Acts, like in Acts chapter nine. Um, no, sorry, Acts twenty six. It said, "I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, uh, priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death." Many times I had them punished in synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. So this kind of explains, he, he didn't just dislike Christians. He didn't, he was just one of those people that, oh, they're Christians who are a bit annoying. He despised them. He chased them down. He hunted them down. He had them killed. Um, he was there when Stephen was stoned. So a couple of weeks ago, Ken spoke about Stephen. He was there. Paul was there. Um, we don't know whether he partakes in it, but he was definitely there. Um, so he despises his people, he loathes his people with all of his heart. He feels that he's, this is what he's called to do, to destroy these new um, Christians. In Galatians it says, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. So the contempt he had is just overwhelming to him. It sort of consumed him. He just That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill these people. So like I said, when Stephen was... Um, 
martyred, who was the first Christian martyr, that started a wave of persecution across the early church, and they were scattered to lots of different places. Um, so Saul, we read, went to the synagogue um, and asked for the paperwork um, to go and get these Christians and drag them back to um, Jerusalem in chains. He was, he was willing to go to the ends of the earth to wipe them out, to get them back. He didn't want them to let them get away. So this is like extradition, you know. There's lots of controversy about extradition, especially with the Americans. But this is essentially what it was. You know, he, he was, um, he had the paperwork. He was going to go and get them. He was going to bring them back, put in chains, put them in prison, probably have them killed just to wipe them out. And even today, um, the most violent people and the most dangerous people on earth are people who think like that. So one of the, you know, the first thing that popped into my mind when I was preparing, you know, it's, in the, it's been in the news really recently, is ISIS. You know, ISIS are... Tr- rampaging across the Middle East. They're chasing Christians and they just want to destroy it. They think that everything other than their way of thinking is wrong and they just want to destroy it. Now, if you were to think of the people in the world or people in your, um, you know, your circle of friends or family who are less likely or the least likeliest to become a Christian. So to me, you know, an ISIS killer, you'd be like, that'd never happen. That would never happen. Those people who would going across doing horrendous things to people, chopping off people's heads and, you know, doing awful things to people. You think, they will never become a Christian. They might have people who are a bit closer who aren't quite as crazy as that. You know, you might have friends or relatives who you think, um, you know, they're never going to become a Christian. I've been praying for them for years. Um, I've been fasting for them. I've been talking to them. They're just not interested. And you've almost like you've given up on them. Um, and what we read here is that God hasn't given up on them, and we shouldn't give up on them. If God can change someone like Paul, and I can't express enough how anti he was, um, then he can do it with anybody. You know, Paul was the worst of the worst. So who is that person? Just I'm not, It's not a question that I want the answer. It's like a rhetorical question. But who's that person in your life that you've given up on, um, that it's hard to keep praying for, um, and hard to keep um, thinking, that, come on, God, I you know, need breakthrough. Um, could be a family member. Um, you know, someone at work or a friend or your mother-in-law. That's not your mother-in-law. You are still there. Because what this passage shows us in Saul is that no one is beyond the purposes of God. No one. Um, so even if to us they think that person, they'll just never do it. You know, they'll ne- and this is really, you know, it's a good time with Alpha coming up. You know, I can think of some people, I think, I could give them a leaflet, but they're never, they're never going to come. And even if they did come, they probably wouldn't become a Christian. So I'll, I just won't bother. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's those kind of things that you just think no one is beyond the purposes of God. No one, no matter what you think. And this is the sort of kind of church that we need to be. We need to be that kind of church that goes out and tells people that. This, this town is full of people who... Um, are broken and hurt and we need to go out and tell them that no one is beyond the purposes of God. And we're also called to embrace this in our own lives. You know, we need to remember that we are God's chosen instruments. Just like Saul was chosen, we have been chosen and anyone can be chosen. And we need to remember that and that's, we need to reflect that back to the um, community around us as well. We need to look these broken people in our town in the eye and tell them that we, we will not give up on them because society will give up on people. Um, and we need to be that church that doesn't give up on people. So, 
even I don't know how long this talk's going to be. Andy thinks it's going to be too long. I think it's going to be too short, but it doesn't matter. It'll be as long as it is. I've already, Chris has already come in and said, remember, keep it short. It's as long as it is going to be. Um, so how does God do this? How does God um, do this? He does this through the spiritual process of conversion that we read about here. Um, so we're going to look at this, Saul's conversion, we're going to go through it, and what you'll find is there's three essential points that happen, and that, that will happen in um, any conversion, ours and Saul's and whoever's. So we're going to look through those. Um, maybe you've had a conversion experience, maybe you've had a really dramatic experience like this, maybe you haven't, I haven't, um, but maybe you have. Um, it can be, if you haven't, it can be very, it's obviously a very spiritual thing. Um, it can be dramatic, you know, get knocked off your donkey, um, if you ride a donkey. Um, and God could come and, you know, Jesus come and talk to you direct. But, I've, you know, I've heard of people say that Jesus came and spoke to me. And it's like he's in the same room. It's very personal. Um, it'll alter the path of your life. It'll knock you off and take you in a, a new direction. And it can also alter your drive and focus, things that you were driven for and focused for before. It'll often change those. And often, after we've been converted, or as Christians, we can build up these wars in our um, lives that kind of hold us back from fully embracing what God has called us to be through this conversion. You know, it can be um, abuse in the past or bad relationships or addictions or just the way that you view yourself or things that people have said. And we all have got these things that kind of limit us from what God has called us to be through this um, process of conversion. And we have to break, if we need to break down these walls that confine us to realise um, you know, our full potential in God, um, then we need to go through these elements of conversion. And we'll get to it at the end, but I believe that it's more than a one-time thing. Some people think you're converted and that's it. But I think this is, a, this is something that can continually happen throughout your um, life. So we'll go through those moments now. First essential moment of conversion is when Jesus confronts. So we're going to go through the... Um, Passage, we're going to have slide number eight, please. Acts 9, 3 to 5. It says, As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So here um, we see Saul, who's um, left. He's got on his donkey with his mates. Because it wouldn't have just been him. There was other people there. It says that. But I'd imagine there's been quite a lot of people there. Um, he was on his way to Damascus, as you know, trying to arrest these people. He wants to bring them back. Um, Damascus is um, about 130 miles from Jerusalem. So it was a fairly long walk. Um, it would have been hot and dry. Um, if you're already fueled with rage, you're just every step in that heat, you'll be just be like... I just want to get them. I just need to get them. And you'd be full of anger. If you're left with anger and then you had to go walk through the desert to get them, you'd be like, why have they gone this far? I'm really going to rip them to pieces when I see them. Um, but in verse 4, we see, um, we hear that um, Saul hears a voice. And the voice says, Saul, Saul. It says it twice. It kind of means something when someone says something, your name twice, doesn't it? You know you're in trouble. We're doing that with Eleanor at the moment, our year and a half old daughter. If you really want to get her attention, you have to say her name more than once. It, Ellen, she doesn't ask, answer twice. You usually have to say it 10 or 11 times to get her attention. Um, but if someone says your name twice, it kind of mean, they mean business, you know. They're not playing around here. 
Um, if Marcus, you know, Marcus, Marcus, you know, you'd listen. Um, it showed him, maybe. Depends if he was listening. Shows intensity. Shows that someone's squaring up. You know, I want to challenge you on something here. Um, this is not gentle Jesus. This isn't meek and mild in a manger. This is sore. We need to, we need to sort this out and I'm going to win. So then Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now this, he's taking this personally. So he's got his attention and now he's saying, this is personal. This isn't, why are you persecuting them? Why aren't you persecuting those people over there? It's why are you persecuting me? If you persecute them, you persecute me. Has anyone seen the film um, Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Danny DeVito? There's a bit in the lift. I was trying to find a clip of it, but I didn't. There's a bit in the lift where, and it's a long time since I was probably about 12 when I saw it last, um, where this guy is giving Danny DeVito, who's a little short fellow, a load of jip about something. And um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's his newly discovered twin, sort of steps out and goes to the front and says, you mess with... And then, and then they suddenly go, and then Danny DeVito finishes as the doors are closing, saying, you mess with me, you mess with my whole family. It's like that. You know, it's, it's personal. This is personal. And it kind of shows that there's an intimacy between Jesus and his church. You know, if you do to them, you do to me. You mess with my people, you mess with me. So he, he confronts Paul's activity, or Saul's activity, personally, personally um, offended. And we can often see God as this fluffy cloud that we can just drift into and out of, and it's nice and it's warm. And there are moments like that, you know, the Holy Spirit does that. But also, these moments happen as well, and we mustn't shy away from them. Jesus confronts us and still does confront us on things. And in those moments, it is, he's not gentle Jesus. We need to be careful not to get comfortable in our understanding of God, that he's this warm duvet that will surround us and keep us. He is that, but also he will turn around, whip it off, and tell you to stop doing something. Then the line, the witch in the wardrobe, um, there were a couple of quotes, one of them by Mr. Beaver, when they're talking about Aslan, who represents Jesus in the books. Um, It says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And I think that's a really good analogy, you know. He's good, but he isn't safe. Um, He also says, he's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. And there's that element of um, wildness. And the times in the Bible where people wrestled with God... Um, so Jacob in Genesis, for example, he wrestled with God all night, um, and he would walk away. He would walk away, but he would walk away forever, remembering that experience. So Jesus' message to Paul is clear: stop, stop what you're doing. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life where Jesus has confronted you and looked in the, looked you in the eye and said, "You need to stop what you're doing"? Because these moments are essential in our own conversion um, experiences if we were to fully embrace the um, the role that God has got for us as his chosen instrument. Sometimes, like a child, we need to be told to stop. And that's really uncomfortable as an adult to be told to stop. Because I'm not a kid. I don't need to be talked to like that. But sometimes we need that to be told when to, to stop. And no one really likes to hear those things. Um, but these these moments in our life when Jesus confronts us on stuff are good and beautiful and they shouldn't be shied away from. They should be embraced and we should use them as a time to move on and to um, to grow. 
So the first essential moment in Saul's conversion is when um, Jesus tells um, Saul to stop. The second, if we move on, um, is Acts 9, 6 to 9. I'll read this first. It says, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground. When he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand into into Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Can you imagine that happening? God talking to you and then you woke up and you're like, you couldn't see. That'd be pretty... You're like, what is going on? So the second essential moment is when Jesus instructs. So he's told Saul to stop. He said, stop what you're doing. Um, stop persecuting me. And then he says, okay, now you must do this. And he's told very clearly what he needs to do. He needs to get up, he needs to go to the city, he needs to wait. And as soon as um, Saul enters the city, he begins to fast. He fasts. Now, you know, I think, part of me thinks that it might be, you know, actually that's a good thing to do in response to what's just happened. I think the other part of it is like, I'd be like a shock. Be like, I can't sit, what's just happened? I was just going to knock some horse. Jesus has come and spoken to me who I didn't believe was who, who he said he was, clearly is. And now he's, and now he's told me to go here. Now I've got, I can't see anything. I can't, you know, walk, walk on my own because I can't bump into, not lampposts, I didn't have lampposts then. You know, rocks, I don't know. Um, and he fasts. So he, so he goes into the city and he fasts. And he's in this moment of darkness where the last thing he saw was the glory of Jesus, the bright light of Jesus. And all of a sudden it's just dark. And in that, you just started thinking about what that must be like, just meditating on that light. You can't see anything else. And that's all, I bet that's all he could see for three days was that bright light. And it's like if you look at a bright light and you close your eyes, you know, but just be, that's all he sees. So God is doing something inside of Paul now or Saul. So Jesus told him to stop and instructed him. Now he's telling him to turn. He's saying, um, this is where he's doing something in Saul. He's exact, you know, he's changing his heart and he's changing his mind. And this is where repentance happens. And I'd imagine, you know, we don't know what went on inside Paul's head, but I'd imagine this is where he, you know, he came to accept that Jesus was who he said he was. Um, he, you know, I'd imagine there was prayers said in that moment in his head. Um, but this is where repentance happens. When we turn from one way, so he was going there to kill them, and um, he's repented and turned around and gone in a completely different direction. The words, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means to think differently afterwards, which I think is quite a good um, definition of that. You know, he was thinking this way, he was going to go and kill them, and then this happened and he's turned and he's gone the other. So because Saul was... You know, he was going to Damascus with a view to, um, to, he felt that he was doing God's work. He felt that he was doing um, what God asked him to do, that he was trying to, um, he would believe he was going to get rewarded in heaven for this. But he's had this thing that's completely changed his direction. So he needs to turn from loathing them into becoming their brother. So at the same time as Paul has experienced this conversion inside of him, there's another conversion experience going on. We haven't got time to go into this. Um, it would be entirely separate talk. It isn't going to be a separate talk, but it could be. Um, was What was happening with Ananias? Um, in Acts 9, 10 to 15, it says, Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. Then he said it once there. It's got his attention. The Lord said, Go over, uh, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, when you get there, ask for a 
A man from Tarsus named Saul, he's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. So Ananias here saying, let me just, just in case, I know you're God and you know everything, but let me just, just in case this one slipped past the net. Um... You want me to go and see this guy who's come here to kill us or to at least take us back to Jerusalem to kill us? I'm, I'm just going to quickly tell you what, you know, you might not have heard, but he's a pretty bad man. And God is changing, you know, he says, no, just go. Just trust me and go. So he tells him to go and it carries on. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as the people of Israel and I'll show him how much he has suffered for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptised. Afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. So we hear, we see here that Saul has gone from persecutor of the church to, he's not quite builder of the church, but that's the direction he's going. He's going from persecutor to builder of the church. He has to turn from this to that. So again, you know, rhetorical question, but have you ever had moments like that where God's confronted you? And now he said, you were doing this, but now you're going to do this. Um, I can think of a few times when that's happened to me. Um, I won't go into them, but I can think of a few things that, that, God has clearly spoken to me about and say, you need to stop doing that and you need to start doing this. So the second essential moment is when um, Jesus tells Saul to turn, to start to live in a new way. Okay, the third one, this final moment, is, um, we've got the slide up, 17... So in Acts 9, 17 to 20, it says, So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you in the road, sent me to grant your sight. Um, instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, regained his sight, and then he went and got baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God, all who hear him, or him heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation amongst Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So the third and final essential moment in the conversion, after Jesus told us to stop, he told us to turn or give an instruction of what we should do is this one where Jesus begins to transform. The outcome of that transformative process that um, we go through is growth, Christian growth. Um, you just have to look at all of the effort that Saul pours into this new way of thinking. Um, it, I'd imagine a lot of it's his character. He clearly was passionate about killing Christians. Um, and people like that, if they're passionate about one thing, they can be passionate about another. But he fasts and prays and listens to God, and he starts to let God alter his heart and mind, um, and he begins to preach. So Saul was then baptised, um, Ananias um, baptised him. 
Historians believe that Ananias, this is a really powerful image, Ananias and Saul would have walked to the church that Saul came to destroy um, and was baptised in that church. How amazing is that? You know, you think of that nowadays, that would be amazing. Um, so he came to destroy the church and then he ends up being baptised in that church. It's a really powerful image for me. So Saul joins their numbers. Instead of wiping them out, instead of coming in and saying, I'm here to destroy you, he's all, all of a sudden, he's gone from a, I'm going to come and destroy you to, I'm going to come and help you build your numbers. So Saul enters community um, and he starts to learn from them. Um, you know, God obviously spoke to him as well in that time. And the outcome of this is that he grew. And if we're to realise our potential as God's chosen instruments, then it's essential that we grow as well and we go through this process and we, and we allow God to um, grow us, allow God to transform us. And this third moment probably takes the longest amount of time because this is the thing that will end up taking the rest of your life. You'll continually want to grow the rest of your life. And it doesn't happen immediately um, just, because, just because you've had a moment where God's told you to stop and turn. It will take a long time to, um, to, to grow, and that should be a continual process. And we're called to a life of growth. And this growth, um, this growth happens best in community, when you connect with people who aren't necessarily the same as you and don't think the same as you, don't look the same as you, um, because they're the ones that will challenge you on stuff and make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And in those moments, that's where growth happens. And that's why, um, as a church, we're really keen on connect groups um, and more um, and, and huddles as well, which we haven't talked about in a while. Um, but if you don't, hopefully some of you are already in huddles. If you're not, then I'm just going to quickly do a huddle plug. Um, huddles are not planned. They're not, we don't say, you're in a huddle with these people. The idea is that you go and find some people who um, usually three of you in a group, um, same sex, and you go off and you plan your own thing and you meet in your own um, way. It can be in the evening or at lunchtime or something. And you just kind of keep each other accountable and you just ask them questions, um, ask questions of each other. And in those, it's in those moments that we grow. You know, We challenge each other and we keep each other sharp. So if you're not in a huddle, then... I'd love to um, help you get into one. Um, I'm, I'll be honest, our huddle has sort of fallen apart, but that's because one of them had a baby, Tom. It's not all his fault. <laughs> Rob never answers texts, things like that. Um, so I know two people who are looking for a new huddle. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> so growth is the ultimate outcome of this conversion process. It's the promise that while we're not yet complete um, through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus flowing, um, that we can be healed of the things that affect us. And that growth is what heals us. So we can become, through growth, we can become more whole and more free in those prison cells that we build up around ourselves. There, that's when God will start breaking those things down and start you know, speaking truth into your life and getting rid of lies and... Um, hurt that's been following you around. So how can we pursue this in our own lives? What's the time? Oh, that's okay, we're doing all right. I've got my... Um, my. I've, I've, it's not uh, for prophetic art. <laughs> I'll get this over. I did threaten that I'll do a picture of Jesus and flip it, you know, a picture of someone looking sad and then we spin it round and it's a picture of Jesus. But I'm not going to do that. Um...
I thought there was a flipboard here, but there isn't. So I had to make this this morning. I'll pull it back. This is just so you're not just me standing. Okay, so Paul's um, idea of conversion, Paul's experience of conversion looks something like this. You've got Saul, or this can be you, or whoever, and you're walking along in life, and you're growing, and you're, you know, you're Perhaps seeking, perhaps you're not as, perhaps they're not as bad as Saul and they're not killing Christians. Um, but maybe they're just exploring or something like that and they have a moment. So they have this moment here where Jesus comes down and meets them. As you can tell, I'm a graphic designer by trade. Um, not the best drawing in the world. So this moment happens and they turn from this way of thinking, they turn around and start going this way and then they grow here. So they're a new, we've put a little badge on them, a Christian badge. <laughs> and then they just grow and they, and they stick with it and they grow forever and then they die and go to heaven. Um, if that's your experience, that's, that's great. That is amazing. I love to hear stories like that where this big, this big moment happens and that is great. Mine didn't look like this at all. I've not had a big conversion moment. I'm converted just to, you know, put anyone's minds at rest of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, mine was something like this you know I, was, I grew up in the church so we're just going along put me down here just going along mine was a bit more like the um, Ethiopian uh, that was you know was reading the scriptures and was asked you know do you know what's going on and he was like no do you want to explain it and, they were, and he, explained, he got explained to and he was like okay and that was pretty much me. Or Peter, you know, he denied, you know, Jesus came up to him and said, put down your nets and come and be a fisher of men. And he was like, all right. And off he went. You know, there was nothing really very dramatic about that. Um, so mine, I was, you know, going along. And and then you, you have these little moments where you think, oh, yeah. And then you get distracted and you go around and you think, oh. And then something happens and God comes and challenges and you go back like this. And then you might get to go back up this like this and get distracted again. And then something happens and you go back this way. And it's a bit like, it's not a linear process. It's not a straight track. It's kind of jiggledy and you lots of turning and refocusing and stuff like that. This is probably more my experience. Now I've lost my notes. Okay, well I've lost it now. So I just want to go back to this idea, and we're going to do something slightly different in a minute, so apologies now, I'll explain what we're going to do. But maybe for you it was this big conversion experience, and that's really good. Um, but maybe your life, maybe we're called to live a life of conversion, a life of repentance where we, um, you know, God's continually challenging us and telling us to stop what we're doing, and we're moving in sort of the right direction, but it's more of a wiggly line rather than a, a straight line. Um and this is where we're going to try something a bit different. So there's two guys, John Wesley and George um, Whitfield, who were um, Methodist theologians. Um, they started the Methodist movement. Um, they believed that they needed conversion experiences every day um, of their life. Um, so they kind of laid out this guide of um, repentance that they went apparently went through every night before they went to sleep or whatever and this you know i was reading this this is incredible so they went they did this every night they examined their heart every night so um we've got it's five to twelve we're gonna we're gonna try and do that now now i've asked the band not to come up um yet 
Um, we're going to try and do this in silence. So this may be awkward and weird. Um, it's definitely going to be awkward and weird. <laughs> Marcus is going to resist the urge to go up and play the piano. Um, stick with me, Marcus. Um, so what I want us to do is I want us to stand. If everybody stands, um, we're going to do this in silence. And then at the end, um, the band can come back up and we can have another song and ministry time. So I'm going to go through these steps as four sets of questions and four answers. I don't know if anyone's ever done this before, but um, it's it's pretty it's pretty powerful. So if I'm just asking everyone to just sort of close their eyes and try and forget that anybody else is in the room, um, this is kind of an exercise of self-examination, and often it can be hard to look at ourselves in the mirror. Um, but that's what I'm trying to um, that's what we're trying to do here: just examine ourselves um, as we journey on this. Um, life of sort of repentance and and trying to grow in God. So I'm just going to go through these things. Ask yourself this. Have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too sensitive to criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? If so, repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until you sense decreasing disdain for others since you are a sinner too. A decreasing pain over criticism since you should not value human approval over God's love. In light of his grace, you can let go of the need to keep up a good good image. It is too great a burden and now unnecessary. Consider free grace until you experience grateful, restful joy. Okay, next one. Ask yourself this. Have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Am I justifying myself by diminishing in my mind somebody else? Have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed, indifferent and inattentive to people? If so, repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is no coldness or unkindness. Think of the sacrificial love of Christ. No impatience, no indifference, consider his free grace until you show warmth and affection. Remember, God is infinitely patient and attentive to you out of his immeasurable grace. Next one, ask yourself this. Have I avoided people or tasks that I know I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? Have I failed to be prudent 
or have I been rash and impulsive? If so, repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is no cowardly avoidance of hard things since Jesus faced evil for you. No anxious or rash behaviour since Jesus' death proves God cares and will watch over you. It is prideful to be anxious. You are not wise enough to know how your life should go. Consider free grace until you experience calm thoughtfulness and strategic boldness. And finally, ask yourself this. Am I doing what I am doing for God's glory and the good of others? Or am I driven by fear, need for approval, love of comfort and ease, need for control or hunger for status and power? Am I looking at anyone with envy? Am I giving into lust or gluttony? Am I spending my time on important things or lesser things to avoid pain? If so, repent like this. Consider how Jesus provides for me, uh, for you love, purpose, value and acceptance. And then pray, O Lord Jesus, make me happy enough to you, in you to avoid sin and wise in you to avoid foolishness that I may always do what is right in your sight.